Well, another reason that I'm excited today is because we're going to start a new series called Battling Unbelief. And I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 6 as we continue our journey through this amazing chapter. There's one unifying theme that is consistent throughout uh, Mark chapter 6, and it is the theme of unbelief. And it starts at the beginning of the chapter with the Lord Jesus Christ going back to minister and to preach uh, the, the gospel of the kingdom to his hometown in Nazareth. And he receives anything but a warm welcome when he goes back. In fact, in verse 6 of chapter 6, it says that he was astonished by their unbelief. We talked about that, what that meant, that the same way that people have varying degrees of faith, there are varying degrees of unbelief, and their hearts were so hard toward him that he was just astonished by their unbelief. Next, the 12 apostles are sent out on a pre-commission, if you will, to endure the realities of unbelief as they go out and it's their turn now to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And they encountered the same hard-heartedness as they preached to the unbelieving masses. And the Lord even blessed them with his power to authenticate the message, to cast out demons and to heal people. They would later return to give their full report to Christ. Next, Mark provides the account of John the Baptist as he encountered the unbelief of Herod and his wife Herodias. And their unbelief was such, it was so strong that it ended up with the Baptist's head on a platter which foreshadowed the fate of Jesus and the apostles as we learn. Next up to bat is our passage today which is an account of Jesus feeding the 5,000, which will also focus on unbelief. But rather than focusing on the unbelief of the unbelieving crowd, it's actually going to deal with the unbelief in the hearts of his disciples. This passage and the passages in the remaining chapter are intended to deal with the unbelief and doubt of the disciples. And oftentimes we're able to look at examples of faith and we're really blessed by that, right? Or study in this series, it will be the disciples' unbelief that serves as a platform for us to learn from. What will it teach you and I about doubt? Have you ever considered how unbelief in your own heart impacts your walk? You think, Pastor John, wait a minute, I'm a believer. I believe. It's not unbelief. How will this passage direct us to trust and rely upon Christ as our Lord provides, which serves as the title of our message today? Let's tackle the text to find out and begin by reading it together. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 33, it says, The people saw them going... And many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. And when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He began to teach them many things. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate and it's already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. They said to him, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves, and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them, and he divided up the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up twelve full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. There were five thousand men 
who ate the loaves. There are only two miracles, only two, that are recorded in all four gospel accounts. And we're going to have the opportunity to study both this month. The first is the miracle of the loaves, which, we're, which is in store for us today. And the second is the miracle of the resurrection, which we'll have an opportunity to celebrate on the last Sunday of the month, the Resurrection Sunday. And it goes without saying that if there's this one miracle outside of the resurrection that's mentioned in all four gospel accounts, we don't want to underestimate its importance as most of you are aware, there's a different theme with each gospel. Matthew, it's Jesus as king. Mark, it's Jesus as servant. Luke, it's Jesus as son of man. John, it's Jesus as son of God. And so there are different aspects embedded within this passage that, um, that we can take notice of. One of the challenges of, uh, of preaching narrative is unlike the epistles where we're given direct commands from scriptures, from the scriptures there, we, we have to draw on the principles that the Lord would have us see that we can apply to our walks. And there are three principles from this one miracle of Jesus so that you and I completely rely upon Christ and the gospel to meet our greatest needs. Our Lord provides so much, and that includes so much for us to learn and the first principle that should capture our attention, our Lord provides compassion for the lost in verses 33 and 34. We know that the 12 apostles just returned from their sending mission. They've come back to give Jesus a full report about what's taken place. You would think that if there was any time that Jesus would take a little time off, like, yeah, I got the boys, they're all ready, I sent them out, I'm gonna kick back take some time off, that doesn't appear to be the case. Add to the fact that each of the 12 is now returning, and so they have people who are following them, perhaps people who wanted to meet Jesus or maybe even witness them perform more miracles. And this explains why in verse 31, it shared there were so many people coming and going that the disciples didn't even have the opportunity to sit down and eat. So Jesus invites the 12 to rest. And as they're leaving this eclectic crowd from many different cities, according to verse 31, takes notice, and they're just like the paparazzi following uh, Hollywood stars, right? They're, they're, they're keeping their eye on them, and they're watching and trying to anticipate where they're headed next. And it appears the disciples were at least able to get a respite on the boat. And John's account lets us know that they left Galilee, which was on the east side, where they did the majority, where the Lord spent the majority of his time uh, near Capernaum in ministry, and they were headed over now to the west side, Tiberias. And just as this is a Cliff Clavin fact for you, so um, Philip the Tetrarch was, was uh, responsible. Herod Antipas, Galilee on the east side, it was uh, Philip, his half-brother, that was um, in control over on the other side. And Jesus and the disciples can finally breathe easy. And hopefully they're going to get to the other side of the lake and they're going to have an opportunity just to get some alone time, to talk to each other, catch up. Get some food and refreshment because we all know this is just how ministry is supposed to function, right? Without interruptions. And yes, I'm being facetious here. Look at verse 34. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd. Stop there for a moment. Imagine if you're one of the disciples at this point. And you've just been ministering to um, uh, together, they've ministered to hundreds and hundreds of people. And they're tired. And they make the journey back. And here the Lord recognizes the fact that they're tired and that they're hungry. They need some rest. And so they're on the boat and they get over to the other side and then they see this massive crowd that awaits. What would your heart, how would your heart respond in that situation? You know, oh boy, can we just get something to eat? 
right? I mean, and, and, I, and I think this is a spiritual growth point for us to, to see and to take notice of. You know, oftentimes ministry opportunities can come at inconvenient times, can't they? Right? When you're hungry, when you're tired, you just finished the day at work, could be exhausted and chasing three or four kids around like many families in our church. It's like, whoa, she's coming over and needs my help again, needs my ministry again, right? How willing am I to allow interruption in my life for the sake of serving others? It really is a measure of spiritual maturity. And let's look into the heart of Christ to see his response. Verse 34 continues by saying, and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. In spite of their unbelief, in spite of the fact that the disciples and Jesus would like some time together, the sight of the people stirred his shepherd's heart with compassion and a desire to help them. In the Greek, it could literally be rendered, he was gripped with compassion. And this is the Greek word that is only used to describe Jesus Christ in the New Testament or to explain the actions of people in his parables who resemble him. And I want to give you one example of it. In Luke chapter 15, it is the father and the prodigal son. After the son, those familiar with the story, squanders his inheritance. And he's got nothing. And he decides to return to his father. The words used to describe his father in Luke 15, 20, after the son decided to go home to his father, it says, the son got up, came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. Same word. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And this is the heartbeat, the very heartbeat of God that came to rescue you and I. Then, then he ran to us. He ran to us as his children, filled with compassion, knowing the, the, the depravity, knowing all the ugliness and unholiness and wretchedness of who we are. He runs to you. And it doesn't matter what you've done, how you've sinned, how you've betrayed somebody, how you've hurt somebody, what you've lusted after for, sins that you committed. He stands there ready, willing, compassionate to take you by the hand and say forgiveness can be yours. And if you're someone here today who has never, ever seen with clarity the mercy and the compassion that, that God shows up with the gospel, that you would see it today, that he would unveil it and allow your eyes to see that we're all in the same boat. Are we not, Cornerstone? We're all together in this. This is the, the, the fellowship of the ashamed because we all know our sin. But we're the fellowship of the unashamed because we have a redeemer who's cleansed us from all unrighteousness. And that's why we come together to celebrate. It is the heartbeat of God. And here Jesus sees a prodigal collection of people, some Hebrews, some Gentiles. In his eyes, they too are lost, described by Mark as lost sheep, which is a picture of prodigal Israel in the Old Testament. Numbers 27, 17, 1 Kings 22, 17, 2 Chronicles 18, 16 are just a few of those references for you. Don't have time to chase that rabbit. The people needed guidance. They needed direction. They needed purpose. But most of all, they needed salvation. And that could only come from the Lord. So what does he do? Look at the end of verse 34. He began to teach them many things. And notice this. His shepherding care opened up to his loving instruction. You're like, well, this is, this is good for us to see. Because it's like, how does compassion translate in my life? What's a practical component of how compassion should translate in my life? We see one in this text with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Not only did he shepherd, not only did he gather in, not only did he pursue that which was lost, but then he lovingly starts to instruct. Now question, what did he teach? Gospel of Mark doesn't reveal it for us in this passage. But in a parallel account in Luke 9-11, it specifically says he welcomed them. This is how it starts. Then when he saw them, he didn't, wow, poor disciples and poor me. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Does this sound familiar at all? It's a skipping record in the gospel of Mark. It it, it was the Lord Jesus Christ who was regularly preaching the gospel of the kingdom and then authenticating his message, proving who he was, God, true God, by performing miracles. And his disciples just fulfilled their first mission of pointing people to Christ. And now they come back and they're witnessing the consistency of Jesus Christ in his ministry. And so are we as we journey through Mark. His entire earthly ministry was driven by his compassion. And it was his compassion that led him to shepherd and to seek and to help those who were lost. It was his compassion that led him to evangelize and to instruct. If we're going to minister like Christ and the apostles, we cannot dismiss this reality. It is Christ-like compassion rooted in the gospel that will fuel your heart for the lost. His compassion can and should fuel our compassion. And in my study this week, I was thinking about how sobering it would be if we were able to just look at the hearts of people the same way that Jesus was. Like just going over here to the Metrolink, right on the other side of the tracks as people wait, and being able to instantly look at them and tell who's a believer and who's not. Who needs Christ and who doesn't? And then it dawned on me that to some degree we can. Listen, if a person is not plugged in to a healthy flock, to, to, to a healthy church, and they're not making disciples, they need our gospel witness. That, it, it is really that simple. If they're not plugged in to a healthy flock, and they're not making disciples, they need us to witness to them. And it doesn't have to be cornerstone. It can, it can be... It can be any church. Of course, we'd love it if it's Cornerstone. And as it relates to just the the email that was sent out by the elders this week, we just wanted to encourage you, our church family, to think about somebody and to be praying for somebody that you would be burdened for during this Resurrection Sunday season. And we actually even created this this little uh, invitation. He is risen. Some, Some, I think, were even in the bulletins. I know they didn't put them in all, right? So, Hey, if, you, if the, the lot fell on you, right? You got that bulletin. It's in there. I mean, that's the providence of God that you got one, okay? That, that, that can't just sit there. Joking. But in all seriousness, this is, this is an opportunity, and even shared this on our church Facebook and in the email, that there are two times a year where people are more receptive to hearing about the Lord, Christmas and Easter. It's just, it's just the way it is. And this life is hard. It's hard. Right? And they need the good news. They need their greatest need met. And the only way for them to live for Christ and his glory is if they're born again. And compassion is what is going to drive us there. And do this, peel back the layers of your heart and ask yourself, how compassionate. If the Father wants you and I to become more like Christ, how compassionate am I? That's not for this person. That's not for my spouse. It's not for my siblings. It's for me to ask that question. And the first principle this passage directs us to straightforward and reflects upon, our Lord provides compassion 
for the lost. The second principle, so that you and I rely completely on Christ and the gospel to provide for our greatest needs is this. Our Lord provides tests for his doubters. Let's start with the disciples' dilemma. Look at verses 35 and 36. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate and it's already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Send them away right there is an imperative. Now, I I don't know the tone. You know, it's hard to tell sometimes. But here, imagine that the disciples haven't had a chance to eat. You could maybe get a little irritated now here, Jesus. You know, some of you guys even get this way towards the end of my long sermons and, you know, the, the smell of lunch from our fellowship lunch is coming and it's in the back, right? Maybe it's like, boy, that food really smells good. I hope Pastor John finishes soon. Let's, let's. So, so I, I, we don't know for certain, but, but they command Jesus, right? And I, and I want to draw your attention to that because I think that helps us set up because he comes back with a pretty strong response, which we're going to see in just a moment. When he tells them, you give them something to eat. So this is like command for command here. And humility always asks questions. It doesn't declare. It doesn't say, you need to go clean your room. Even as a parent. And we have the authority, right, to tell our kids, you need to go clean your room, right? And we can say, in humility when it speaks, sweetie, would you be willing to go pick up your room right now before we head here and head there. Humility asks questions. Pride makes declarative statements. Well, the sun's going down and the disciples are considering that they're in this desolate location. And so basically the, the Lord's zeal for ministry and their practical instincts are colliding right here. They're like, what's, what's, what are we going to do? And so they realize that it's going to take people some time to get into the villages to find um, a, a street vendor or somebody who can sell them some food. And if they buy food, not all food was prepared. So they might need some additional time to even prepare it. So given the lateness of the hour and the massive number of people, even this suggestion has limitations, but it seems better than doing nothing before it turns into a crisis. There were no fast food, you know, 24-hour Taco Bell. There, there was no uh, super Walmart, you know, 24-7 for people to get supplies. Little did the disciples know that the Lord was going to use this opportunity to challenge their unbelief. Rather than dismissing the crowd, he challenges them at the beginning of verse 37 by saying, you give them something to eat. Why did he respond this way? Mark doesn't tell us, but the Gospel of John does. In John chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, it actually reveals that Jesus had asked Philip a question. Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And then verse 6 says, he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. So this was planned. The Lord knew And the disciples' unbelief had them focus on what they could do. And look at the middle of verse 37. And they said to him. Now we know that it's who who, who asked or who was speaking on behalf. It was Philip, right? But our account in Mark says they said to him. Why? Because their hearts were all united in that they, 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 they reflected the same attitude and the same uh, the, the same concern. And they said to him, shall we go spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And Jesus was testing them. Same way that he tests his followers today. Many times we're tested, right? The Lord never tests us for no reason. It's never just for the sake, you need to know this, that it's never for the sake just to frustrate us, just so that we feel angry or worried or despairing. It's always with purpose, is it not? We know this. God wants our trust 
to grow. He wants us to increase. He wants our faith. He doesn't want it to stay, stay at the same level. He wants it to continue to grow and trust more and more as our relationship with him grows. He wants us to trust him with all our heart. He doesn't want us leaning on our own understanding. And he knows we need regular challenges and reminders. Even like from this passage today in Mark chapter 6. That you, you, an account that you're, I'm sure most in our church are familiar with. Right? We need the reminders. We need the challenges. Because many times we can be just like Philip and the disciples. And it shows in their response where their faith was. It was in math and statistics. In numbers and probability. Their trust was not completely in Jesus. And let's put their financial doubt in modern terms. One denarius was, was equivalent to, what did it say? A day's wage? All right, so what's the, the, anyone know what minimum wage is in the state of California? Go ahead. Nine bucks an hour? Yeah, it's going to go to 10, January 1st, 2016. But let's just say right now it's $9 an hour, average workday $8, or eight hours. Nine times eight, football math. Uh, football player, uh, 72, yeah, 72, right? $72 a day, right? A day's wage right there. And they, they said it was going to be $200, $200, uh, two, 200 days wages. So 72 times 200, easy math, zero, zero, two, four, two times seven, 14, 14,400. Is that correct with my math people? Out there? Yeah, I got some of the teachers like, oh. congrats, Pastor John, you, you got it covered. So $14,400 $14, in modern terms. And let's just say, you know, bread today, it's like, you know, you, the average cost of a loaf of bread is probably a couple bucks. But let's just say these cakes that um, are being used to feed the people, which we'll talk about in a moment, they cost a buck each. So 14,000, you, you got about 14,000 of them. But verse 44, when we, and we can peek down there just to see, it lets us know that when the men only sat down, there were how many? 5,000. And in Matthew's account, it lets us know that the women, there were women and children. And so we're talking about um, closer to 20,000. All of a sudden, those 14,000 cakes don't seem like enough. And now, what do you do? And I, and I don't think any of us, if we were just like the disciples, dropping $14,000 out of your own pocket would, wouldn't seem very realistic to us either. So the disciples are right, thinking purely in terms of numbers, but they're completely wrong in not believing that Jesus could and would provide. They missed the fact that he was the all-sufficient provider. They were looking to self. That's what, that's, that's what unbelief does. It looks to self to provide. Rather than looking to the Lord. And you and I, are, we do the same things, right? Just as, as the disciples, right? We... We, we, we doubt his provision. We doubt his goodness. We doubt his faithfulness. We doubt the truthfulness of God that he's gonna provide for us and, and for, for our families, in our situation, with my student loans, with school, with this. We, we, we doubt. Of course, Jesus knew he was going to feed that crowd. He knew that nobody needed to go out and buy bread and just to remind them of their own inadequacy, the Lord asked them in verse 38, how many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. And it's actually in John's account, which is the, the fuller account, if you can, can tell, keep referring to it, that it was actually a little boy's lunch. Now, these, these weren't five loaves like we think of five loaves full of bread. These were just little hand-sized cakes of bread. And, and the fish would have been like sardines. They would have been softened. They would have been able just to spread on the bread, make it a little bit more 
palatable to swallow. And Jesus was helping them see their unbelief and whether they really believed in the power. Boys, have you been paying attention? You've been with me now for two years at this point. Have you not taken notice to all the miracles, all the provision, all that I'm doing? All of it was pointing to the fact that he was God, true God. His majesty, his glory, his power on display through countless miracles. I love the insights that Warren Wiersbe shares about this passage. He says, Jesus looked at the situation not as a problem, but as an opportunity to trust the Father and glorify his name. An effective spiritual leader is someone who sees potential in problems and is willing to act by faith. Acting on the basis of human wisdom, his disciples saw the problem, but not the potential. How many times God's people have complained, if we only had enough money, we could do something. 200 denarii would be the equivalent of a year's wages for the average laborer. The first step is not to measure our resources, but to determine God's will and trust him to meet the need. Amen. Amen. And there's just a, a, a couple practical insights that I think it would be good for us to, to draw our attention to. First, the, the, the two words. Problem versus potential, right? Unbelief has us hyper-analyze the problem. It has us fixated rather than faith and belief which turns us to the provider. And by default, when God tests us, that is what happens. We magnify our situation. We, we magnify the the. How am I ever going to be able to pay this debt off? How are we ever going to be able to provide for this or for that? Right? All of a sudden, the problem is just massive. It can be overwhelming if you're not careful. It can eclipse who God is if we're not careful, right? And all the time, by faith, God wants us to see, and we used this illustration before, that through that trial that we would see his hand coming through, that we can take a hold of it, and he can provide. And he always provides. He always provides. Yet there's another insight from, from Wiersbe's comments that I think we need to take notice of. He says the first step is not to measure our resources, but to determine God's will and trust him to meet the need. This seems so basic, almost elementary for a believer. But every need that we think we have should be filtered through the will of God. What do I mean by that? Well, sometimes what we think we need is different from what God knows we need. What time, I mean, really, we, 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 we think we need this, and God shows up, and to accomplish his purposes and his plan, he lets us know that, no, you don't need that. You need this. And he helps us to see his will. And he always provides. He always provides. I want to share an encouraging testimony from a brother in our church that our Lord has really grown recently just going through, through doubt, going through challenges of unbelief, and he's grown his faith tremendously. It's an email that he wrote to his care group brothers. I asked for his permission if I could share it. He also included the, the leadership of the church on the email. And I, I want to honor him by, by reading the, the whole thing rather than just reading portions. Um, but this is what it says. It starts out. Hey, brothers. Praise the Lord for his goodness and his steadfast love. He gives comfort to the weary through his sovereignty. A year ago, my lung collapsed and the Lord exposed my self-reliance and self-sufficiency and taught me to depend on him more. He doesn't include it, but by the way, he had never had surgery in his life when his lung collapsed. This year, I was laid off from work the day before my wife's baby shower it was a shock that had me thinking through what had happened, how it had happened, and why it happened. It was truly humbling. 
through it, God led me to 1 Peter, specifically chapter 4, verses 12 through 19 and James 1. And then he, he provides the text. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because of the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. In that name, a Christian. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful, faithful creator while doing good. And then he uh, quotes James 1, uh, three verses, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He says, I realize that it was his sovereign will for us to walk through this path at this moment in our lives. I realize that I should not think it's strange when trials and tribulations come over my way. Instead, I should rejoice and entrust my soul to a faithful creator while doing good. A week after I was laid off, my wife delivered our son four weeks ahead of schedule. He was rushed to the NICU after his skin turned gray and blue. This was tough for us because we didn't know whether he would survive. And the nurses attempted to comfort us by saying that he was a late preemie, but we had lingering anxiety. At that same time, my wife had to stay additional days in the hospital to make sure everything was okay with her post-preeclampsia. That was also a scare, but it was an opportunity for us to entrust our souls to a faithful creator and acknowledge that our son was his and that we were only stewards of our little one. It was an opportunity to lay even our precious newborn before God. I was powerless in making my wife and baby better. So I prayed and I prayed with my wife and we pleaded and asked God that both would get physically better. After 13 days, the Lord answered. Both my wife and newborn son had gotten better. Praise be to God. In retrospect, when everything seemed to be going to shambles, the Lord reminded us through his word that he loves us and that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It was an opportunity for our family to pray and ask our almighty God to sustain us through these trying times. And you know what? He answered prayer through you. He displayed his love through all of you, through your prayers, through your acts of love, meals, cleaning our entire home, delivering necessities. I mean, we are truly blessed as a family and we deeply appreciate all of you in Christ. Please continue to pray for us in these areas that we would be strong in the strength that he supplies, 1 Peter 4.11, especially caring for our son. Two, that we would seek first his kingdom and continue to entrust ourselves to the faithful creator while doing good. Three, that we may be dependent upon him in the employment process. My identity is not in what I do or don't do, but in who I am in the eyes of the eternal God because of Christ. I am his. And he signs off. I wanted to share this encouraging testimony, not to exalt the person, but to exalt the provider. And if, if I can summarize this email and everything that he had gone through and the, the, the impossibilities of everything that he faced, much like trying to feed 20,000 people, if I can summarize it, what he shared in three words, our Lord provides. Our Lord provides, amen? He does. And, and not only does he show up, but his hands and feet are the people. It's the compassion of the church. It's the prayerfulness of the church. It's the blessing and the ministry and the life, breath of the church. 
And when our faith is tested and unbelief tempts us to doubt, these trials are God-ordained opportunities to completely rely upon Christ and the gospel to overcome our unbelief and provide for our greatest needs. And the Lord wanted his disciples to see it then, and he also wants you and I to see it now. Our Lord provides compassion for the lost. Our Lord provides tests for his doubters. And the third and final principle in our passage is this. Our Lord provides sufficiently for all. Look at verses 39 through 42. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them all and they all ate and were satisfied. This physical provision here is staggering as it relates to the Lord's miracles Um, Him doing something collectively, this is certainly one of the greater miracles that he's ever performed. And if you and I were there, we would be blown away. We'd be absolutely blown away. And picture yourself just being one of the disciples. So you're you're having people sit down, right, on on the grassy knoll. You're, You're making a little aisle, so, right, you're putting them in 50s and 100s. Cut our church in half. This half over here, right over there, a little aisle to walk down the middle of this half over there. And they just kept repeating the process, getting people all set up. And you think to yourself, wow, it's nice, it's spring. They even got a little green carpet to sit on. This is a little cushy spot for them. But then you wonder, what on earth is Jesus going to do? Right? And your mind begins to, and you're starting to think, and you're just like, Grab one of the, 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 the apostles and you're like, Peter, Peter, what's happening here? We only have five loaves and two fish. And Peter's like, shh, Jesus is praying. He's blessing the food, shh. And he doesn't know what's gonna happen. And then all of a sudden, as soon as he says, amen, he says, come up. Come up, and they each start coming up, and he starts passing them out, and they keep going, they going out to the group. It would have been very realistic for each of the disciples to have 15 to 20 groups this size, this size, okay, if we cut our church in half to serve. And they keep coming up, and we know at the end that they had a basket, because there was a basket for each of them, so they had something to, to serve and take the food out with, okay? And it's absolutely amazing and all of a sudden, just people, the, 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 the apostles, they, they keep coming back. They keep coming back, and they're, they're getting more food. And Jesus keeps making and making, creating, creating. And eventually, they're just like, where is this coming from? And before you know it, everyone had eaten their fill. Every last person had eaten bread and fish. And they were absolutely stuffed. And we can safely assume that this was probably the best bread and the best fish that they ever had. And we can even consider the first miracle that Jesus performed. It was the wedding at Cana when the Lord Jesus Christ made 200 gallons of water into wine. And what did they say when they tasted that wine? Wow, that was good stuff. You absolutely saved the best for last. So we can assume that this meal was one of the best that they ever had. And as great as the Lord's physical provision is, it is his spiritual lesson that we cannot miss. There's, there's, there's two aspects that, we, we, that shine through this principle. First, the Lord's common grace to provide for all people doesn't negate the spiritual lesson. Yes, Jew and Gentile will gather. Yes, believer and unbeliever. Man, woman, child, the Lord allows the rain to fall on the just as well as the unjust. It is a great display of his common grace here to all mankind. It is also, it must be understood that everyone's spiritual need to trust completely in him is what is being emphasized as he preached the gospel of the kingdom. 
And in the Gospel of John, it says that the crowd found him the very next day. And this is what he said to them. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore, they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. The people wanted him to make them into bread factories. They, they wanted the, to just do the works of God to be able to spin out the bread and the fish the way that Jesus had done. And he emphasized the greater work their spiritual need to trust completely in him by faith. And it's just a few verses down in John's account. I almost feel like we needed to preach it from John today, but you can read it at a later point. Down in verse 35 where the Lord Jesus Christ says, I am the bread of life. He who eats this bread will never hunger again, will never thirst again. That is, is the emphasis on the gospel. He wanted them to see their need. Well, there's a second aspect, and it's this. Our Lord's adequacy to cover the disciples' inadequacy. Question, what did they bring to the table? What did the disciples bring to the table as it related to, to, to feeding the crowd? What was it again? Five loaves and two fish, Right? Jesus featured this for them so that, 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 that they saw it. And another question, did Jesus need to use those five loaves and two fish? No, right? He created the whole world ex nihilo, out of nothing. He spoke it into existence. But my point is, and the one that, that we need to see, that he did use it. He did use it. And he realizes our inadequacies. And he will still be the great provider and he still uses us despite, despite your feeling inadequate to share the gospel or to approach your neighbor or to disciple this person. He will provide. He will provide. It is the spiritual lesson that the Lord wanted the disciples to see. He is the great provider and he can make up for what we lack. What evidence does our Lord provide for them? Our final verses tell us, and they picked up 12 full baskets of broken pieces and also of fish. And there were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. 12 baskets, 12 apostles. You know, I was looking back at the other accounts. I was trying to find where did they eat after they returned from that mission? Where did they eat? Tell me somewhere where they ate. They had not ate. And they were hungry too, were they not? They were hungry too. And what does the Lord do at the very end? He provides them each with, 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 with a basket completely filled up for them to eat, for them to take back to their families, for them to share. And there is this beautiful, symbolic picture of his provision. Everything that they need. As they would go out and do ministry and do all things, the Apostle Paul, all things for the uh, sake of the gospel, that they would become a fellow partaker of it. Right? We get to, en we get to enjoy we get to enjoy it. One basket for each of them that would serve as a great reminder that he can and will sufficiently and adequately provide for all their needs if they will completely rely upon Christ and the gospel. Our Lord provides, amen? Our Lord provides compassion for the lost. Our Lord provides tests for his doubters. Our Lord provides sufficiently for all. 
Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You are holy, you are hallowed. You are our great provider as we've just learned. As your son's eyes looked up to you for the blessing of provision. And he serves as our great mediator with direct access to you because of the gospel. And we get to be a partaker of it. And we're blessed week in and week out to come and to enjoy this fellowship as a result. And Father, I do pray that if there is someone here today that has never turned to you for forgiveness, never acknowledged their sinful imperfection that would eternally damn them and keep them out of your presence, someone that has never seen their need for the perfect righteousness of Christ, that they would ask you for forgiveness today and trust completely in the great provider. Trust completely. And for those of us in Christ, we know as it relates to the provision, it goes well beyond our salvation. Into our sanctification, into our personal growth, into the opportunities that you provide for us to live our lives, to put you on display as we endure trials. And you want us to look to you in faith when they come. You don't want unbelief to hijack our hearts. So I pray for anyone in our church family, Lord, and there's many different trials that multiple people are facing, different people, and you know every single detail of it. I pray that you would use this message in great measure today to strengthen them, to encourage their spirit, to allow their hearts to be full and satisfied because of Christ and the gospel. We give you thanks and praise. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.